cardboard on the concrete under the awning. It's cold, but dry nonetheless. It takes me a moment to settle in and pull some more cardboard over me. That is my bed tonight. Luckily, the wind is light. Despite the circumstances, I fall asleep almost immediately. Those are the words of our next guest. Mr. Clyde Allen Hensley is a local singer-songwriter from Akron, Ohio. He's also an advocate for the homeless. Listen next to his story on Recovery Talks, the podcast. Direct from Akron, Ohio, the epicenter of modern recovery. This is Recovery Talks, the podcast. From those in recovery to those working in recovery, meet those who are shining the light on Recovery Talks right now. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lee Shannon. If you found us here, you know that you can reach us at recoverytalks.org, our one-stop website where you can find everything in one place. You can download us. You can do everything you want to do, like and share and do all that stuff. But before we talk any more about that, let's get to today's guest. I am so pleased to be here with this gentleman. Our next guest is a guy that I met many, many years ago when I worked at a music store. And there's a story with a Les Paul, of course, (laughs) because (laughs) there's always a story with a Les Paul guitar. But my next guest is Clyde Allen Hensley. Clyde is a singer-songwriter from Akron, Ohio. And he is getting really well-known in Northeast Ohio as a gentleman that's got an intention, and that is music with a message. And uh, that's really, really well needed in these times. And I know, Clyde, you do a lot of really great work with a lot of people. So everybody, all my guests, let's say hello to Clyde Allen Hensley. How are you doing tonight, Clyde? I'm doing wonderful. Too blessed to be stressed is what I say. (laughs) That's awesome, dude. I love that phrase. So a little bit about Clyde. Clyde is, you know, obviously we go back because, you know, we, we know each other from the music world, but we always also know each other from a shared experience of getting sober. The people on this podcast have heard my story ad nauseum. Trust me, they've heard every nook and cranny about Mark Lee Shannon's getting sober story. But it's really a pleasure for me when I can bring somebody that's got a story like yours, Clyde. And you know, you are active in the recovery community. You're also an advocate for the homeless. And you educate people against the stigma of addiction and how that works its way into homelessness. And to be honest with you, that's really, I think, where I'm at tonight. When I was sitting down, I just finished a a long walk with Martin the dog, my second of the day. And uh, Martin was telling me, you know, you ought to talk to Clyde about that homeless thing. And I'm like, you don't have to tell me, Martin the dog. I know, you know. Uh, (laughs) I really want to get into your story, what it was like before you got the the magic of recovery, the magic wand. And But I do want to tell our listeners that there's an article, if you want to look it up, it's in the Devil Strip, and it talks about Clyde. And Clyde wrote this little biopic about uh, about what it was like one Christmas Eve to be homeless and to not be sober. And to start with just a line to set the tone, which just floors me, my friend. And he says in this article, he says, I am spending most of my nights at a homeless shelter. I receive a meal, a shower, and a bunk to sleep in. Other times, often, I'm too drunk to stay at the shelter. So I walk the streets, sleeping a few hours in the bushes outside that shelter. Bus stops. Man, 
that little line right there just, I mean, it's so descriptive. And I can see, and you and I have talked so much about that. I know, I know your stories, but why don't you tell our listeners, how did it happen, man? How did you get to the place where you ended up through circumstance or through addiction? How did you end up an alcoholic, an addict, and homeless? Well, Mark, um, I, you know, I don't think anyone sets out in their life for a journey like that. I could sit here and speculate that it was hereditary because there was uh, people on my dad's side of the family, they drank. Uh, my grandfather that I did not know on my dad's side passed away from drinking cirrhosis. And uh, my dad drank hard, but somehow he just white knuckled it towards the end there. But with me, I had the perfect enabling situation when I was young. My mom was worried that if I hung around the quote unquote burnouts, I would become one of those hippies that lived in the van down by the river. And <laughs> they played that guitar too. You know what I mean? They burnt that incense, yeah, let the hair yeah. grow long. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was that kind of deal where she was like, you know, you can have a beer every night here as long as you don't go out and drink with those kids down the street that are two or three years older than you. They're bad kids. They drink and, you know, they they smoke the devil's lettuce. I'm like, <laughs> okay. And, and so then, you know, the beer, to me, right off the cuff, even though it was Weedman or something real high notch where it was that white can that just said light beer, um, it, it was like, I like the taste of it. But I got to say that that feeling, the initial feeling of I'm not that fat kid at school that has a speech impediment. I'm, I feel okay. I'm cool. You know, I drink my one beer and I, I play my guitar at night and I think I wore out the Black Sabbath album live at last. It was, you know, not their best album, but to me that was just pure gold at the time. You, you could play that stuff, and when you're starting to play, you could get your fingers to move those chords. I remember it very well. Yeah, and, and you know, then all of a sudden, throughout high school, I was picking up to a couple beers a night, and, and no one said anything. And then, you know, the weekends, you go out and you get the Jenny Cream Ale or, or whatever. Who to pull gold? I got deathly ill on that crap one time. But it gradually just slithered into my life. You know, we talk about alcohol being baffling, powerful, and cunning, and it is. And, and until you hit that, I certainly wouldn't call it a plateau, that level where you've got to address it, you're ready to make the effort to get sober and get into recovery. You don't really realize how cunning, baffling, and powerful alcohol is. I had DUI after DUI. There, there was physical things that happened throughout my life. Um, at one time, I was considered diabetic, and I quit drinking for a little while. And all of a sudden, I was okay. I didn't need to take met 
Foreman or Meta friend anymore. The, the repercussions didn't come till later, till my late 20s, early 30s. But by that time, I had stacked up enough chips in the bad category that it was starting to rain pretty hard. So how was music during that period for you? Was music present in your life? Were you were you doing music at that time? I was playing, as you know, up through about 24, 25 with, with the band Power Drive. And um, we were playing all the bars, all those classy bars with a pole in the middle. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we played some bars that are no longer around, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, we were playing and we were having a good time and, and we thought we were legends in our own mind. Yeah, because the real thing that was happening was going on in the parking lot in between the sets, right? You know, on the breaks. That's where the real action was. Yeah, you leave the gig and you go to somebody's house and be up all night doing whatever and waking up in the bushes or waking up in your car or waking up in somebody else's car. Yeah, it it was all kind of going bad, and at that time, I I had really lost lost my true incentive, my true calling on music. I wanted to be a songwriter, but I was in a band where we were doing kind of heavy metal and the big hair stuff, and it was like fun, and I loved playing my Les Pauls and my Flying Bees, and you were my hookup for that as you know. Um, and so, you know, we had that hearse that we drove around, which was a real eye catcher. And, you know, Lord knows how many nights I crawled in the back of that thing and slept it off. So progress along to the place. I mean, obviously we know that addiction, alcoholism is, is a chronic disease. It just continues until something happens, either treatment or you have that moment that what I call in my life, my life crash, you know, where it all just unwound for me. But what I'm really interested in is, is you telling your tale of, of how it got to the place where you found yourself on the streets. People got sick and tired of me. I had burned every bridge. And by that time I had quit a Harley Davidson job four times and they just kept bringing me back because I remembered part numbers. And by that time, I was no longer really into music. I'd listened to Towns Van Zant and some kind of depressing stuff, which always helped me drink quicker and, uh, you know, feel like a poet lariat or whatever they want to call them. I, I got to a point where I was what they say in the big book I was unemployable, I couldn't go four hours without a drink. I was at the point I had two endoscopes done and I was throwing up bile or blood. Nobody wanted me around. So I had tried getting sober four times. I had three DUIs, a couple other small charges, nothing real major. And with alcohol, I, I could very well be put away for life you know, for the things I had done. But somehow my higher power, the Lord, just kind of 
kept working me a certain way. So 09, nobody wanted me around. And it was like, well, I guess I'll go down to Akron and, and try this Haven Rest place. Now I can get sober on my own. You know, I've been sober through court-appointed rehabs. And so by that time, I had went through IBH. That was for DUI at 9 a.m. And I blew a 3.2. And instead of going into court sober at that time, I went in and blew a 2.6 at 9 a.m. So the judge put me in jail for a little while and um, I got out and they put me through IBH and then on community um, service. I botched that up, but they gave me another shot. I worked through it and I got through it, got through IOP, but then I went right back to drinking. So 09 was the breaking point. Support for Recovery Talks, the podcast and rockandrecovery.com Provided by Ohio Means Jobs, Summit, and Medina Counties. Recognizing that looking for a job can be tough, especially if you're also navigating a path to recovery. Ohio Means Jobs, Summit, and Medina County offers free career coaching, support services, and training for in-demand careers. For more information, summitmedinaomj.org. I'm going to take I'm going to take our listeners back to this article, and, and, and some of your words are just just so striking about your experience in homelessness. And it says, and I'm reading and quoting you, it says, as a few hours pass, I keep walking on East Market in South Arlington, thinking with every footstep how I ended up here, remembering holidays past, because again, you wrote this article around the Christmas time. My mother and my father's conflicting moods, my son's excitement, his inquisitiveness about Santa, his gratitude. I become tired and I need to sit down. It's between 3 and 4 a.m. when I slip behind a convenience store. I know the area well enough to know I can rest behind the store without too much trouble. Cardboard on the concrete under the awning. It just kills me, Clyde. It's cold, but dry nonetheless. It takes me a little moment to settle in and pull some more cardboard over me. This is my bed. Luckily, the wind is light. Despite the circumstances, I fall asleep almost immediately. Wow, man. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, it was rough. You know, I got kicked out of the Haven and that takes a special kind of drunk to do that. You know, that's no badge honor. But yeah, I had been kicked out of the Haven, so I needed somewhere to go. And so at night, I would kind of just scurry around, you know, like a night urchin and sleep in a bus stop for a little bit. And then maybe go down by the BP. That's where I was talking about the BP on market there. And uh, go behind there and sleep. Or there was a funeral home at one time down near Al's Pawn Shop, I believe the place was called. I'd sleep by the back door where they'd take the bodies in and out. We're listening to Clyde Allen Tensley, who's a local singer-songwriter, talk about his experience being homeless and his journey to recovery. We're going to take a little break right now and play a little bit of his music, and then we'll be right back. I can't be somebody you want me to be. Don't try to 
Please continue telling your story about, you know, when did the turn happen? When did the turn happen for you to say, I think I can live sober. I think I can have it. What was the moment? And I think you've told me this story before, but tell our listeners, please. Towards the end of 2010, it was summer and a little old lady gave me a hundred dollars as I was working the ramp, holding a sign, we'll work for food. I, I needed alcohol. That was it. And lo and behold, I went to the BP and got a ton of alcohol. Mind you, by this time, my liver is pretty toasty fried. And um, there were days I could drink a 24 ounce and feel like I had drank a case. There were days I could pack away three steel reserves, the 24 ounces, and be like, what is going on with me? What's, what's going on? I just cannot get anything going on. I, I can't get buzzed. So I got some beer to take back to the camp. I'd hooked up with some guys. We had a little tent city over by the cell tower. I was walking down by the old glass shop there. Now it's area 67 recording, oddly enough, where I record. Um, actually going to record tonight one of my recovery songs. I went down my low pathway and I remember stopping and just going, well, before I go back there and give anyone any beer, I've been out on that ramp all day holding a sign, you know, people throwing pennies at me, people throwing their coffee cups at me. And, you know, I I deserve to sit here and and have a me moment of reflection. I even said that back when I drank, which is scary as hell. As I'm reflecting, I'm pounding down some some steel reserves. And if anyone knows what the street name is for that, it's crack in a can because it's like 8.1 alcohol. And I'd always get, get them warm so they get into my system so the shakes would get gone quick. Somehow I woke up on the train tracks and I hear somebody, you know, Hey buddy, are you all right down there? Get off the track. There's a train. Hey, are you alive? Get off the track. There's a train move. And I'm waking up to this and Lord is my witness. I looked around. I'm like, where's my beer? Where's my beer? And I saw my bag of steel reserves. And I'm looking to try to grab those and kind of wake up. I'm coming out of a blackout, pass out. All of a sudden, I feel some arms around me. And the gentleman and his friend pulled me off the track. I'm trying to hold on to my beers. I'm getting upset because I want my beers, darn it. And literally, the train came by. and we're standing there and I, and to this day I get goosebumps. I'm standing there with these guys, my bag of beer, you know, that's my lifeblood at that point. And, um, the wind whipped by me and, um, I like sobered up at the drop of a hat and the guy, what guy goes, Hey, 
are you okay? I go, yeah. He goes, you nearly got killed. I go, thank you. You saved my life, man. And he goes, my name's John Sosa from Salvation Army. And I'm like, I know who you are because I had gone through Salvation Army after I went through IBH for the court-appointed DUI and showing up in the morning on a 2-6 at Cauga Falls Municipal. We started talking and he walked back to the camp with me. He's like, man, we got to get you in Salvation Army. He goes, your buddy, Rob Riley, he's seen you and you're in a bad way. And I had met Rob at my first little gauntlet at uh, Salvation Army. Rob was like the Peter Griffin from Family Guy. And everybody was waiting to see what he'd say next when we were in the Salvation Army. He's like, we got to get you back in there. And I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, maybe it's worth one more shot. But, you know, somewhere in my alcoholic mind, I'm thinking it ain't even cold out yet. There's a lot more beer in them fridges up there at the BP to drink. So, man, I, I, I couldn't go back. You know, I'm, I'm finding reasons not to go back. I'm 280 pounds. I look like a dull banana version of Rob Zombie with a flannel shirt on. <laughs> and I'm, I'm talking myself out of going... So what did it, man? What did it? What made you, what was the moment? It was September. So it was a couple months past. And I was standing behind the BP. They knew we drank back there. All us homeless people drank. And I drank a, I remember like yesterday, Mark. I got off the ramp early and I treated it like a job. But that day it was like, I'm going to cut loose a little early today. I've got money. So I go, I get a 40 a laser and I pound that thing. And I'm like, okay, the shakes are gone, but I'm not getting any kind of feeling. I'm not getting that relief that the alcohol usually gives me. It's not giving me that, okay, I can bumble through another day of this existence. And I couldn't tell myself any more that, yeah, I I don't need help. So I go back in, I get another 40, and I drink it. And I'm standing out there, and it's mid-September, and I'm like, well, hell, I've got a shot. I can go to ADM, because when it was cold out, sometimes I would go there, and they'd give me a blue boat to sleep in. And uh, I've been in and out of there. The cops had dropped me off there a thousand and one times. You know, they'd find me drunk at lock three. They'd find me drunk somewhere stumbling around. And they'd be like, come on, Clyde, we'll take you down here. We ain't taking you to jail this time. So what was it? What happened? Where where was it in that moment? I think it was a spiritual experience. I'm, I'm positive of that. It was 
at the dumpster on East Market, the BP, I was like, okay, I either point blank stay out here, freeze to death, or get killed. Or I I get sober and and really truly do some work and see what sobriety is about and recovery. So I've rode way rougher rides. I think I better go to ADM. So how long has it been since that moment for you that you've been you've been living in sobriety? I didn't consider being in ADM sobriety. I considered the day I walked into Salvation Army, my first day of true sobriety, because I wasn't on phenobarbital or anything to take me off the, you know, the shakes. And I had seizures and stuff withdrawn. That was October 6, 2010. By the time we get this out, you'll be, you'll be probably closer to 11 years. I, I know what that feels like to get a certain amount of sobriety under your wings. And you do fly differently the more time you have. And it's a dangerous thing to say to people because, you know, a lot of people say, you know, we hear about people going back out and drinking after, you know, some little time, some medium time or some big time. But, but for me, I, I just think that there's just, as long as I can stay in today and keep doing the things I'm doing today, meaning listening to you, talking to you, talking to other people that are, that are dealing with the difficulties we have. And, you know, just this podcast is not just about people that are alcoholics. It's really a, about addiction of any kind. It's from people that may have suffered from trauma, people that deal with mental health issues, physical disabilities. You know, it almost always works hand in hand with just the disease of addiction. It's almost always. I guess as we turn towards wrapping this up, I just want to say thank you so much for for sharing your stories. And, and, you know, we just came through a pandemic. You know, I know that you've gone through some recent changes in your life and that just doesn't stop happening when you're sober. I mean, one thing people have to know about is that, you know, just because you get sober, life still shows up. Life still happens. Sometimes it's three o'clock in the morning, banging on your front door, dogs barking, rain going, red lights flashing. It shows up. But the difference with living in long-term recovery is you know, you develop a little pouch of tools that you can reach into to deal with the difficulties. And, and you know, what are some of the things that you're encountering in, in today that help you, you know, that maybe challenge your sobriety, but also help you keep sober? What are some of those things? I, I got to look at me and how I react to others, because sometimes I can get kind of shut people down before they really, I listen to them and hear what they truly are saying. I already have an opinion. I don't want to be that guy that can shoot off seven things you can do right away. I have some issues, you know, on different levels that I'm trying to be better at with just letting go of things in the past and moving forward and things like that. And and every day I try to learn something new and with my job, my new job, I'm kind of 30 years, 25 years of doing the same thing the same way day in, day out. And now you add something new onto it. It was overwhelming the first two weeks. So I had to have that attitude of gratitude and open my ears and eyes and go, I'm here to learn. Because 
if I learn, I'm going to be a better human being behind this counter and somehow I can apply it somewhere in my walk and in my recovery. I might be able to help others through that. Day in, day out, I try to focus on the small little victories because I see so many people that when they get sober and they get a couple years or a little time, man, they they just want to rebuild their whole life overnight. And it's like, it's a gradual process of learning who you are now, looking at who you want to be and knowing how to get there. But none of it is possible if you aren't staying in recovery. That's that first step. Yeah, that's that's the key is is putting the recovery process at the center of your life. You know, Claude, I just want to say, man, thank you for coming on my little podcast show and sharing your story uh, of experience, strength, and hope. And you know, I've known you for a lot of years, brother. And I just want to say, on behalf of myself, on the staff here at Recovery Talks, the podcast, and in in the community in Northeast Ohio, we see you, we see what you're doing, and it's meaningful, man. You know, you may not think, as we all do, that are out there doing our thing and trying to help other people stay sober. You may not see what you do, but I see it. And I'm here to tell you right now that uh, you're appreciated, my brother, and thank you for what you do. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, brother. That means a lot. That's like, that makes my night. There you go, man. Well, listen, I want to thank everybody for hanging with us tonight for this edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. Well, stay tuned for more episodes with more guests as they share their journey from the darkness to the light. You know, those people that are on the front lines in the recovery movement, that what I call the lantern holders in the lighthouses. And everybody, until our next episode of Recovery Talks, you can listen to more podcasts on recoverytalks.org. You can find all our work right there. But until then, please, everybody, just stay standing and steady on. Mm-hmm.